some of the younger professionals want to get from A to B in like now, you know, and that's just, you know, experience you can't, you can't do overnight. There's a lot of things with the phones that you can do very quickly. And, you know, things have sped up a lot with technology, but experience is not one of them, right? I would say, take your time, work super hard and learn as much as you can. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm very excited about this one. I have my friend Ignacio Garcia Menocal, the CEO and founder at Grove Bay Hospitality Group. Ignacio, thanks for being here. Steve, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. As we were just saying, we knew each other from before the pandemic started, but I would like to share your whole journey. And right. we always start every podcast with what was your first job in hospitality? I wouldn't call it hospitality, but my first job was as a uh, Winn-Dixie bag boy, and I was uh, 14 years old. I wanted to travel out to the U.S., and my dad said, you know, you have to make your own money to pay for the airfare and all the costs. And uh, if you if you raise half of it, I'll match the other half. So I worked an entire summer. I think back then, minimum wage was like $3.25 an hour. It was so, so low. But I ended up, you know, you know, getting the money and my dad matched it and I was able to travel. So so you were in the service industry at Winn-Dixie. Where were you working? In Miami? Winn-Dixie in Miami. Yeah. See, yeah. you're a local boy, too. There's not local many boys. of us. Born and raised. I know. I know. So you do that at Winn-Dixie. You're definitely not thinking you're working in hotels or restaurants, right? So right. when you go to FIU, you're going for accounting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So hospitality is not in your head at that time? It's not. So, it, you know, my my journey to our industry is actually it wasn't a direct straight line. It was kind of all over the place. So I actually went to UF before FIU uh, at where I studied accounting. I uh, earned a uh, bachelor's of accounting and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. My dad was a banker and he was in the business side. So I figured that was a good degree to have that could help me with, you know, a lot of different things. After I finished my bachelor's, I did go to FIU where, where I finished my master's of accounting. And then I, I sat for the CPA exam, I passed it, but my the beginning of my career was you know definitely in, in the public accounting world and in the business world, you know, f- far away from the hospitality. Yeah, so when you leave school, you get, you're joining Deloitte, right? You're 
Is mm-hmm. that the first job out of school? And you're That's going my first there? job out of school. And I was there six years, and it's a, an amazing training program to be a young professional. I mean, their their training program is outstanding. They're you know they're ranked uh, one of the best hundred companies to work for in the U.S. for a reason. And I thought it was I think it was a great foundation, not in hospitality, but as but in business and how to be a professional and how to treat people that are all very important. And you know what I'm doing today. So what was it like when you're there? Because I've heard some things that it's really challenging sometimes, like it's a hard position to work in Deloitte. Was that what you experienced or was everything yeah. hunky-dory? No, no, no. It, it's it's very challenging because you, you work a lot of hours. You're thrown, thrown into the fire day one. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting in rooms with public company CFOs and controllers and people that know a lot more than you. You know, you either step up or you know you, know, you have to leave basically. But but it but it's a great trial by fire and 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 it's just a great you know educational you know few years of my life. And so when you're doing that, are you working with businesses that are in hospitality at the time? Is there anything on your radar hospitality wise, or is it just you're doing you know, the books for companies? None, and- none. So I was some of my clients were Florida Power and Light. Mm-hmm. Uh, Direct TV, the Miami Dolphins were one of my clients. So I had big clients like that, but you know, none in hospitality, which is so interesting. interesting you know? yeah, yeah, I love part of this. This is why I love hospitality because you never know how you're going to enter the world. So right. you're doing a great job at Deloitte, but then MasterCard, another big name, you end right. up joining MasterCard. And what were you doing there for them? I did. So I was a director of finance for the Latin America region. I was there for about a year. I've been with Deloitte for six years, and then I always had the the entrepreneurial itch. What I learned when I was at Deloitte is that I was always uh, auditing or advising clients, but I w- but I but I wasn't on the other side. You know, I wasn't on the inside of the companies trying to be successful, trying to you know make budgets, trying to you know trying to make great products, etc. So I kind of mm-hmm. had the itch to go to the other side, and I ended up taking that job as a director of finance with. And I was there. It was it was a good job. It was a lot different from what I was doing before. And, you know, so that gave me a little taste of the more entrepreneurial side of side of a business, I guess, you know. Yeah. So you're starting to round it out. And this is where I think you finally enter. Right. So in looking over this is where you decide to make a move, something very different. And you join the Shula Restaurant Group as their vice president of finance. So how does that come? Because that's a very big jump from what you've been doing the first part of your career. Yeah. So it's 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 a very interesting story. So I had been with Massacre for a year. I get a call from one of my former colleagues at the Lloyd, uh, who's still there today, and he asked me, "Hey, the Shula family is looking for a VP of Finance or CFO for all their, you know, restaurant companies. Would you want to go meet with them?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, I don't know. It sounds interesting, right? I don't know anything about the hospitality business. I, I just got here to Mastercard. I've only been here a year. I don't like jumping around. Let me think about it." I go, "Let me call you tomorrow." I get home that night and I get a call from Dave Shula which is Don Shula's oldest son. And for those of us that were born in Miami, uh, you know, I remember watching him coach in the sidelines uh, with his dad, you know, mm-hmm. the Dolphins. And then he went on to be the offensive coordinator for the Cowboys under Jimmy Johnson. And then he was a head coach for the for the Bengals for a few years. And then he left there to be the president of the you know family business. So, I mean, I knew who he was and he calls me and he's like, hey, you know, call me Ig. Ig, I got your name from Ray. Would you mind coming in and meeting with my dad and I? And I was like, Okay, <laughs> you know, being, sure. uh, being a local Dolphins fan, uh, I said, sure. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know anything about the hospitality industry other than I like to eat and drink. Yeah, And so I showed up and, you know, it's a Super Bowl trophies and the Hall of Fame jackets. And it's all and I, at the end of the day, what Shula's was selling, you know, this is this is going back a lot of years. But what they were selling is steak and football. And 
when I met with the family, I was like, you know, this is something that I that, that I can get behind. And I and I took the leap and they just they took the leap on me, not because of anything about the hospitality industry, but because I, I, I was blessed. I guess that I worked hard enough or I had developed a, a pretty good reputation that they had enough good references of me that they were willing to work with me and just, you know, just, you know, hire me as far as my, my, you know, who I was, not that I necessarily knew anything about the hospitality industry, you know? That's so cool. So when you walked in that room, were they, was it like Don Shula sitting there and like, you would see like a set in a Don movie Shula, like behind Shula. the big desk? Yeah. Kind of, yeah. kind of like the Godfather. Yeah. 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 He, he was a great man. Uh, you, you know, he was a good guy. Yeah. I love it. So, but, like you said, it's a very different type of accounting, right? Hospitality mm-hmm. and food and beverage is very specific. You know, there was no chat GPT back then where you could ask questions yeah. and things like that. How did yeah, you learn yeah. how to do things? So, yeah. It, so that's that's where my formal education started. Um, and, and, you know, once I got in there, I, I realized that I really, really liked, you know, the industry. Um, because and I think the reason for it is that it was my passion personally. Again, eating and drinking, but not my passion and my and my job were, you know, one and the same. So I did realize that I had to do a lot to, you know, sort of catch up. So, I, I mean, I read every book there was, you know, starting with Danny Myers, you know, setting the table and every other book that's been written. I took, uh, uh, you know, seminars. I went to conferences. I, I mean, anything you can imagine, YouTube videos, anything you can imagine that I get my hands on, I did. So I was really, really studying for the first two or three years. I did. Uh, I went to Cornell and did one of those, you know, cert- certificate of, of uh, food service management. So I did everything mm-hmm. I could to really learn about the industry because I knew the business side from my background, but there's a lot more to know about the hospitality and just the business, right? So that's what I, so you know, that's what I try to do at least. So when you're when you're there, right, you're dealing with a lot of alpha players there, right? Yeah. You have leaders that have been in that industry forever and you're the new guy who hasn't yeah. been in, in hospitality. Did people challenge you when you were coming in and be like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about or did you be able to speak the game pretty quick? Yeah, no, no. I I remember there were some, you know, director of oper- uh, operations that were older than I was because I was at that point, I was in my early 30s. So not only did I not know anything about the hospitality industry, but I was also fairly young in age. So mm-hmm. those are those are two challenges that, that you have to overcome when you're dealing with more experience, uh, you know, directive operations in their mid 40s. So, yeah, so I had to earn their trust little by little, you know, even though my my rank per se was higher than theirs. You know, that doesn't matter. You know, you have to earn their trust uh, and that they can sense that you know what you're talking about, you know, and and then at that point, and you know, that takes time. So it, it, it's, you know, day by day, trying to do your best, trying to give the best advice, trying to learn, trying to learn from them. You know, I, you know, what I did when I got there is really, you know, listen a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew I couldn't go in there and start barking orders or saying stuff because I probably, didn't, you know, I, I don't know what I was talking about. So, so, you know, I made a conscious effort just to listen and learn, you know, from everybody. So I think taking the humble approach really helped me. Yeah. I think there's some people like that. Like I came up pretty fast. Right. And so you get imposter syndrome, like in certain high level yeah. positions, you're like, right. well, it's my first time. Everyone's like 20 right. years older than me. Right. Right. Yeah, so no, for sure. For sure. Did that come over you? Like what advice would you give somebody like maybe they're listening to this right now and that they're that yeah. first person. What advice would you give them? I think, you know, probably the approach that I took, which is being humble and just, you know, listening. And and I I think because I think young leaders and I've seen this many, many times, young leaders, you know, for other reasons we just talked about, because they're young and, you know, they want to prove something that, you know, I know what I'm doing and I'm this Mm -hmm. and that. And that sometimes, you know, backfires. I think if you take a more humble approach and you just listen and understand and learn, and then you take that with whatever experience you have and kind of give a a, a, a solution or, you know, you know, just be part of the team. I think people take that a lot better, you know, as opposed to just 
walking in and barking orders, especially if you don't know what you're talking about. That's even worse, right? <laughs> that's good advice. I think that's yeah. a, a good way to put it. So you're there a good amount of time, you know, five years, mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. working with the family, you're working with yep. that brand. Yeah. And then another big brand that's on the rise gives mm -hmm. you a call. So can you set the stage of where you went? How did that happen? Did they come find you at 50 Eggs or did you find them? Yeah. So I had been with uh, Shula's for five years and, you know, Coach was getting older. It was a brand that wasn't necessarily on the rise. You know, he was very risk averse, understandably, because mm -hmm. he was older and he didn't need to. And, you know, I was still young and hungry. So I I, I was keeping my, my eye out for some sort of young up and coming brand that I can, you know, join and maybe, you know, and kind of, you know, take off with them. And coincidentally, our corporate attorney uh, at Shula's, who was a gentleman that I had established, you know, a, a pretty good relationship with was uh, 50 Exits corporate attorney. And just in passing, he had mentioned that, you know, they were looking for a CFO. And I'm like, oh, this is my, this is my cue. You know, this is, this is my next move. And I told him, hey, why don't you make an intro? You know, can you make an intro between, you know, John and myself? And he did that. And then, you know, the rest is history. And so you joined 50 Eggs with John Kunkel, one of the, would say, premier restaurateurs in the country, especially when you right. joined. Right. What, what, what was it like when you joined? Was it just the Yardbird restaurant brand? Was there anything else that was still no, going on? No, it was, it was a very young company. All we had was Lime Fresh Mexican Grill. Yeah. And then, so, you know, that was in place. And then he, he had already signed the franchise agreement with Ruby Tuesdays. Uh, which was very, which is a get, you know, so that was done before I joined, which was a great contract that he signed because seldomly ever do you have a small company like, like Lamb Fresh be the franchisor for, you know, a big public company like, you know, mm -hmm. Ruby Tuesdays. So in that master agreement, they were committed to build 200 stores over the next, you know, X amount of years. But we knew early on that at some point they were going to buy us out because it would make no sense for a public company to be the franchisee of a small company like ours. So, our strategy early on was to buy back franchises from our franchisees in order to increase our, you know, our the uh, valuation of the company. So we did that for the first six six months to twelve months that I was there. And sure enough, you know, we thought it was going to take a lot longer, but within the first year that I was there, you know, Ruby Tuesday said, "Hey, you know, we just want to buy you guys out." So I worked on that entire purchase on, um, you know, or not not purchase sale on my own. And, and it was basically me, you know. Yeah, what was that like? Right? That's a big deal. It, it was yeah. it was very challenging because imagine, so I was dealing with like 20 different people of, you know, Ruby Tuesdays, you know, because, you know, they have to do all their due diligence plus mm -hmm. another public company. So that's a very extensive process for them. Very detailed, very lengthy. So I was dealing with 20 different people. You know, they have one person for each thing, one person that deals with inventory, one person that deals with, uh, you know, fixed assets. So it's like, you're getting all these emails and uh, different people from Ruby Tuesdays asking for all these different things. And I'm trying to manage this, the sales and just keep it going. So it doesn't fall apart because, you know, it can fall apart at any point in time and, and it ended up going through and this is public information. So I'll share it, but you know, we ended up selling it for $24 million, which at the time was, was a big one for our company. Yeah, that's a big win. I remember the first one. I forgot about Lime Fresh and being part of 50 Eggs. I remember the first one on Alton, I think, or it was like the second one. Yeah. Was there. Yeah. And it was yeah, a great, the first one. It was, was awesome. Yeah. yeah. I remember going there and visiting. So you do that. That's your big project. And mm -hmm. are you doing any other part projects there when you're there for those three years? Yeah. So while we're in the process of selling Lime, uh, we go ahead and we open New Arbor in the beach. And and I remember thinking, uh, man, who's going to eat fried chicken in South Beach, like the vanity capital of the world, right? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, you 
you know, bikinis and, you know, buff guys that work out and, uh, you know, who's going to be eating that. But luckily, you know, we didn't take my advice and we opened and it, and it, and it opened to a huge success and, and, and it was packed every day. I remember Sunday brunch, we, we started opening for brunch, I don't know, say at 11. And there was a line out the door of 100 people, 50 people. And then we're like, OK, 1030, same, 10, same thing, 939. And we had to keep opening, you know, moving the opening time because, you know, the line was at the door. You know, so that was a huge success. And then from there, we ended up opening Kong River House. I remember that Chef, one. Chef B, that was actually one of my favorites. I really liked it. I was sad when that closed down. It was what? a great restaurant. It, it's just, a, it just it, like rent wasn't adding up because it's hard to over opening restaurants. People don't realize yeah. Yeah, it, it is hard. It, it's it's really hard. So that one and and Swine, which is the one that we opened also in the, the same time as Kong, closed after I left. So I don't know what the issues uh, were, but I think probably rent was was one of them. Anything in Alton Road, you know. No, I'm sorry on uh, on uh, Lincoln Drive is just so so expensive, and you see it now. It, it's all turned from some local restaurants to really these huge yeah, international brands. brands. Yeah. Well, really the only ones that can pay the rent, yeah. Yeah, that's coming up in Miami. We had that cool Lincoln Road. Now, I hope it gets back to something like that down the road. But all right, so you're doing great things. And I want to really focus now in on what you've created and this this brand of yours. So yeah, I want to focus on the how because there's so many people that have that. They're an executive. They've had this dream of starting something on their own. Mm-hmm. And I have these talks a lot because you've started something. I've gone out and they're like, wow, like, how do you do this? And so how does it happen? Right. You're working with 50 eggs. They seem to be growing. But you have this entrepreneurial you mentioned a couple times already. Yeah. How did you start to do the shift to create something of your own? Yeah. So actually, I had already taken sort of a step into the entrepreneurial world back when I was a Shula's. So Coach Shula uh, ended up allowing me to do my own Shula's franchise. So, oh, you know, that was my right. first restaurant, even even though I was still working full time. And so that was the one right across from Sunset Place on uh, 57th uh-huh. Avenue, right off Sunset. You know, so that was my first restaurant that opened in 2010. So how did you do that? Because you're working for the company. Did you I'm ask, you full time. Hey, I want to do this? Yeah, I asked they to and you? they let me. I had a partner that who's still my partner t- today, you know, Francesco. He's my, you know, partner and co-CEO. He was the one running more of the day to day. So I would just support it. So I would go at nights on the weekends and kind of, you know, that was my first taste of because it's a lot different when you're working for a company than doing it yourself and having your own brick and mortars and, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, paint right yourself and pay right, right. yourself. And, and I remember, you know, we lost money for the first, I don't know, six months. Sales were strong. But again, it's very different when you're when you're doing it and, and food costs and tweaking and labor. OK, what's the schedule? And, 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 you know, but then we got the formula right and ended up being there you know, for 10 years until the franchise agreement was over. So even prior to starting Grow Up Hospitality Group, I already had that restaurant. And then we we also bought the Corona Beach House at the airport. You know, so we had two, you know, we had two restaurants already, you know, before we Going. actually you know, went for them. So, yeah. So so, you know, so we had those two. And then what happened was that we ended up bidding on this big, you know, I'm going to say we, it was my partner because I had a full-time job. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give him the credit. So there was this big RFP, which is a request for a proposal that that came out in the city of Miami for the Coconut Grove site where Scotty's was in Chart House. So, so my partner with some investors kind of bid on that. It was a very lengthy process. I had to go to commission and then I had to go to public referendum. And then, and then we ended up winning that. So then at that point, we're like, oh, my God, we have this massive project. It's an 85-year lease. So, it, you know, it's, it's around mm-hmm. forever. We have to build some restaurants here. So we can, he and I kind of looked at each other and said, I think, why don't we do this? Like, you know, why don't you leave your job and let's just do this full time? Like, sure, let's do it. So obviously, I had to take a, you know, take a step back 
for my good salary and all that. But I felt good about, you know, betting on myself. I felt good. You know, we do have a couple of Russians that are doing well. We need to take some of the money and invest in infrastructure, obviously. So we're not, you know, we're not just taking all the distributions because, you know, we have more stuff coming up, you know, down the pike. So once we did that, you know, that's when we formalized Corope Hospitality Group. And it's called Corope Hospitality Group because this big project that kind of took us to the next step is in the growth. Um, And our office is actually... (laughs) Also in the growth today, but and then, and then from there we just took off. What ended up happening is a project that was very complicated, so it took a long time to to permits and design and all that. So we were like, well, let's not wait for that. Let's keep building different restaurants, and then yeah. you know, we'll just work from there. That's amazing. So I want to go back there for a second because I didn't realize that that was what started it all. Because I've mm-hmm. seen all your other restaurants come up. Yeah. So. And Scotty's Landing, maybe you can give like a 30-second download to the listeners that are not from Miami, because that was a very beloved place. It was. So, it was. And there was a lot of heat coming on that project. Oof. Yeah. What I'll, was I'll that tell. like for that RFP? Yeah. So the funny thing about the RFP process, yes, there was a few loud, you know, very loud minority <laughs> that were very pro Scotty's. And because, and, 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 I, and I get it, it, you know, it had been there 30 years. It was an institution. It was really one of... It's, it's really one of the only waterfront restaurants in Miami, which is very strange to say, right? Because we're in right. water, but the, you know, just the way the city is designed, that's just the way it is. And I remember uh, once or at least, start, you know, we had one in, we had, uh, we had passed the public referendum. You know, we passed 63-37, if I'm not mistaken. So basically two thirds of the citizens voted for it. The only district that we lost was coconut grove <laughs> so so you know that tells them the you know that tells you about the grovites that you know that didn't want to change but so i remember taking over and the first day that you know that we took over from scotty's and you know we took over operations of scotty's for for the final two years of its existence you know oh, wow before we knocked it down to start construction and you know and then i was there for, i think it was a friday night and some lady, some, uh, you know, I guess, I guess recognized me or I don't know what, and she makes a beeline for me. And she's like, she, I mean, I could see her walking towards me with like fumes coming out of her head. I'm like, oh my God, this is not going to go well. And she's like, and I'll never forget this. And she's like, you, you're going to knock Scotty's down and you're going to do this and that. And I'm just like very calm. I'm like, ma'am, I understand your frustration, but let me ask you something. What do you like about Scotty's? Do you like, do you like the food? No, the food is whatever. Okay. Do you like the plastic white chairs that you sit in? No, they're not that comfortable, whatever. Do you like the really dirty bathrooms when you go in there? No, I don't, I don't like that either. Mm-hmm. Do you like the service? No. I go, what do you like? You like the the view and you like the nice chill atmosphere, right? She's like, yeah, yeah. It's, and I go, what if I give you the same view and the same awesome atmosphere with live music and all that, but better food, better service, and a, and a clean environment? And she looks at me and she's like, yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> yeah, so I like that one. <laughs> once you broke it down as to why people like Scotty's, it, mm-hmm. it, it was it was just a vibe. You know, it's you know you're in the water. It's 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 casual. It's nice. It's relaxing. And, and you know, now what you built is a, wor- a way different world, much better. So for right. anyone listening, you have to make sure you check out all of Grove Bay Hospitality Group's restaurants. Yeah. But that's where I want to talk. So you have that in the works. I didn't realize that was the first, but you yeah. start winning. You start building like award-winning restaurants. So. Can you yeah, walk us so, through like how you start sure, doing that? Sure. So we so we won so we won this RFP and then we start you know designing all that and that's going to take forever. So we're like you know let, let's start looking at other restaurants. Coincidentally, the city of Miami reaches out and says, "Hey, we're going to put an RFP out 
for a park location that's not a restaurant right now, but we want to turn it into a restaurant, which is where where uh, Glass and Vine is today. One of my in favorites. And in a in yep. a, a, a Peacock Park, and we said, sure, you know, we'll bid on it. There was three bidders. We won. Uh, we did that project with the uh, with the Chef Georgia Rapic Avoli back in the day, and then and I'll never forget house. that process. Uh, yeah, for Beating House, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll never forget. Uh, you know, after we won, and this is typical, you know, city stuff, I guess that happens, you know, so after we win the, we're signing the lease or we're, you know, we're going through the lease with the city and the attorneys realize that they have put on an RFP that's in direct contradiction with, with, uh, with city code, basically because there's a, there's a kid's park adjacent to the restaurant and city code says that you can't serve liquor, beer, wine, whatever within, I don't know, I forget. It's like, you know, a thousand yeah. feet or whatever it is. Obviously, this is at zero feet. It's literally right yeah, next there. To- That's why I love it. <laughs> so then the city tells us, uh, oh, you know what? We made a mistake. Mind you, they put an RFP against their own code, right? And, you know, and they say uh, we can't, you know, you guys can only serve food. We can't serve. And I'm like, well, we're not going to do it. Then. <laughs> that yeah, makes no sense, over. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, get more. We're not interested. And then, you know, and they realize and they ended up making an exception to their code for that restaurant, which is one of the only restaurants if not the only one in Miami where you can literally have have a glass of wine watching your kid, you know, right there in the playground. But the reason that they really wanted a restaurant there is because it was a recommendation from the police commanders to kind of the only the only way to kind of clean up what was happening there with the homelessness and all that is to have something that's activated all the time. And, and you know, so that's what happened. And I think since we opened there, that park has become very safe and very mm-hmm. et cetera. No, I've been there many times. I take my kids there. They love going. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. built that way. I thought it was on purpose. That's so funny to hear that was just a mistake. There was a whole story behind it. Yeah, yeah. So then from there, we're like, okay, this, you know, we're, uh, it got off to a great start. Okay, great. You know, we're doing well. You know, what do we do next? And we we were still trying to sign chefs for for the project because we thought it was going to come a lot sooner. It ended up taking a much longer. So one of the original ideas was to have a full service restaurant. And one day my partner and I are, are home, you know, at each one of our homes and Top Chef season 13 was on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was the first episode. And this, this young hot chef from Miami, you know, won that first episode. And he was brash. He was dropping F-bombs, you know, the entire episode. Yeah. But, you know, he had that, you know, it factor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm. you know, so I get to the office the next day and my partner's like, did you watch? I'm like, yes, I did. And we're like, let's call him. And so we just randomly reached out and that was Jeremy Ford. And he was working at the, at the, uh, at the room at the time. Yeah. And, you know, we asked for a meeting and he, he's like, yeah, I know who you guys are. Let's meet. We told him what our vision was for the project in the Grove. And he's like, I'm in. And so we signed a deal. And, uh, funny enough, you know, the season was still going on. Obviously it's pre-taped. So he knew that he had won and mm-hmm. he never told us he had won. You know, we would ask him, of course, he'd be like, did you win? He's <laughs> like, I did well. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Is that fourth, third? Right, right. But he ended up winning after after our agreement was signed. So what ended up happening is that the project kept getting delayed. And then he was getting itchy because he was hot, right? Because he had just won. He just won. We're like, okay, let's look. Let's do something different that we're going to do in the Grove. Let, let's look for a smaller restaurant that's more of a tasting menu, kind of a you know more more chefy. And mm-hmm. that's where we find the location at, at uh, 101 Washington, right by, right by Joe's. Yep. And, and that's how that started. And, 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 and the name stubborn seed, funny enough, it's kind of, uh, uh, it's kind of, uh, 
it's kind of him because he's stubborn <laughs> and, but you know, but he's, but he's stubborn for, you know, greatness and he's stubborn and, you know, he was a seed. He was just getting started and blew me into something great. I love and, that. It's just amazing yeah. how you, you did that. Yeah. Cause a lot of people have that idea, but never make that phone call, never do the interview. It was, right? it was random how we did it. And what it, and, and it, and it went from uh, watching a top chef episode to making a phone call to actually doing the restaurant into a, you know, Michelin star. So it's, it's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. now you have a Michelin yeah. star restaurant all off of this one phone call. It's amazing to see yeah. this and what y'all created, but you know, do the, when you look at the beach, you picked an interesting place on the beach because a lot of restaurants had been there and not mm -hmm. made it. Mm -hmm. What do you think it was about that? Was it just cause you had the chef and he just got done with the show and you had good PR come off, but it's still there and it's doing great. What yeah, no, I think so. I think, I think, if you look at South of Fifth, there's a lot of Russians that do very well, right? So it's, it's sort mm -hmm. of hit or miss. Either it's like it's a it, it's a home run, or you or you strike Crash out. You know, mm -hmm. Just you know, half a block down, you have Joe's, which is an institution. You know, a block down, you have Prime One Twelve, and you know, uh, you know. So you have a lot of great restaurants with that do a lot of volume, but you can't go in there, you know, because of that really fierce competition and those great restaurants. You can't go in there and just you know, you have to go in, you know, you have to swing for the fences, you know, to be able to compete. And I think we did that. And I think we did, what we did was was we provided something different than than you know they did. It was more chef driven. It was more uh, you know fine dining, mm -hmm. uh, you know tasting menu, etc. So I think that created a different experience. And and yeah, so I think so cool, so cool. I love that. And so the journey continues on, right? You continue to grow. Like we were mm -hmm. talking, you know, off stage, like during the pandemic, we were trying to get something done when I was yeah lows. Which right, the right. Pandemic changed our lives, right? Yeah. Where now they got Rayos in that spot, but they do, they do, yeah. I saw yeah, that. We'll have to go over there and check it out. We'll call, yeah. we'll call Mootloo. Let's uh, do it. So, what is us happening? You continue to build well, we out did. your yeah, we, Grove we restaurant, kept, but you keep going. We're still, we're still working in the Grove ones, <laughs> permits, mm -hmm. construct, all that good stuff. Yeah, but you know, we kept growing. So we we have uh, we opened Still Soul Fish Bar in uh, Sunset Harbor. Mm -hmm. So that was also with two former Top Chef contestants, Jeff McInnes and Janine Booth. You do that on purpose? We're like, all right, this went really well already with the first Top Chef, and then we're gonna do it again. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. If you remember during that time, like that was like the that was like the thing, right? Like the mm -hmm. like the chefs were like the stars. So I think uh, you know, opening uh, a restaurant with a you know with a chef partner was you know pretty important at that time. And uh, so yeah, so we did that one. We opened a few in South Miami, Rudenbone and Metalia. And then, you know, one day, you know, we, we get an interesting call from Marcus Samuelson and he telling us that he's working on a project in uh, Overtown. Mm -hmm. If we'd, uh, you know, want to meet with him, we're like, okay, sure. I mean, Marcus is one of the biggest chefs in the world, right? So we went ahead and, you know, met, met with him at the site and he told us what, you know, he had envisioned and, uh, you know, we were in. And so that's, you know, that, that deal is a little different because Red Rooster is his brand. So we're, so we're operating partners. Mm -hmm. But that's been a great, great, uh, you know, you know, project for us and something that we've enjoyed hiring from that community, you know, providing, you know, good paying jobs to the folks that live there. Um, and I think amazing. the city has really embraced it. Uh, and it's that's well. a great yeah. restaurant. And so, you know, as people are listening and I'm listening, you go on this tear, you're opening restaurants, you've got RFPs coming. You know, are you raising money from investors? Is it something you're doing with banks? Is this something you had yourself because you won the lottery? Where are you getting? Yeah. Uh, some of our own money, but primarily investors and, you know, our own money. We, we've had the same four or five guys that are, you know, friends of ours from, you know, restaurant number one. So we've been very blessed 
we have a great working relationship, partnership, friendship, mm-hmm. and it's the same guys. It's the same guys from 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 day one. And and what we're blessed with is that these guys are independently wealthy, so they don't need the distributions from the restaurants to live. You know, it, that's that's just additional, which is great because it doesn't put the pressure. Like for example, when you have downtime, like during COVID, right? So that's right. a very difficult time. But these guys aren't relying on this to live. They're 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 fine. So that really takes off the pressure as far as really, uh, you know, we're always trying to perform well, both operation and financially, right. regardless, you know, but you don't need that uh, that additional pressure that people can't feed their families, you know? Yeah, because we've talked to people that they take the wrong investor and it goes terribly right. wrong. It is, that is one of the most important things. And we got lucky. We got, we got very, very lucky. Yeah, they can go very long. If you're not aligned is, as to as to what you want to do, uh, you know, because I've heard stories of investors are, are, are all about the money, you know, so they're willing to cut mm-hmm. costs or willing to serve less quality stuff, whatever, you know, but that's not us. Our, our, our approach is we do the best that we can in terms of quality and, you know, we don't take shortcuts while also trying to make the most money. Right. And, 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 and I think we proved that, that you could do that with, you know, stubborn seed. Mm-hmm. I would venture to say there's not a ton of restaurants that went a Michelin star and do as well in terms of profit, as a restaurant does. So, you know, it can be done, but it's, but it's, you know, but it's work. But again, but if you line up with the wrong investors, you know, and it can never be all about the money, right? Because the guest is going to suffer and eventually the restaurant's going to fail, but it can't be all about the experience and not worried about profit because then the restaurant's going to end up closing because it's, because it can't pay its bills. So it's got to be the healthy balance, right? Yeah. Um, so if somebody's like right now, like, man, I really want to open something. You know, I'm looking for an investor. Do you have an advice for them for looking for someone or putting out the word, or is it just work your network and see what you? Yeah, got? I, I would. You know, I, I'm not sure everybody has a network. I was I was blessed enough that I did have a network, mm-hmm. and you know, some of these guys were just friends and people that I knew, and so so I would go that I would say that that's the first place to go because because you already know these people, so you you know what they're about, you know right. what their values are, you know, so that's the easiest route. If that's not an option, then and you and you go out there, then I would really make sure that uh, folks do their due diligence on this, you know, potential investor, just like they're going to do with you, you know. Mm-hmm. But this is a, you know, this is a marriage, so it has to go the other way, as well. And, and call call references, call people, Google anything you can do to research to uh, to make sure that these are good people, you know. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that with all of us. And for you listeners, rewind that. Cause that's great advice for whatever you're starting, because there's a lot of people who think they can just raise money from somebody and think they're not going to have a boss. And a lot of times they end up having a boss they didn't know they were going to get. And, you know, the other point is, is ideally it's not somebody also comes in money, but, you know, what are they bringing in in terms to the partnership? Like what can they add a value to the operations? Right. Mm -hmm. So very often, you know, most of the time chefs open a restaurant. Right. But their but their background is they're fantastic at what they do, which is the kitchen operations, et cetera. But they may not have that business background. So ideally, the, the partner up with an investor that hopefully has a business background, and you know that can be a good partnership, right? Because they can complement each other on on the things that the other one doesn't know. So yeah, and make sure they're not coming into the restaurant running a tab they're not paying for. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's True. funny you say that, but very early on with our first restaurant, we made the rule that everybody pays, and to this day, myself, the investors, everybody, everybody pays, no discount. I love it. And, and I think it's super important because we treat it as a business. It, it's not a place for us to go have fun or, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a business. 
And I think it also sets the tone with the staff, you know, whether with their team members that if the owners mm-hmm. pay, everybody pays. There's no freebies. There's no, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you know, giving stuff away. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Hopefully yeah. not that much. The right way. You do it for the right things, right? You do it for the right things. Yeah. I love it. All right. So what I find fascinating, and I did not know that, you know, the one in the Grove was the first and you've built award winning restaurants across the city before you open in Coconut Grove. So yeah. give us the rundown of how that gets open finally. Right. So that finally gets open. You know, not only that we have all the delays with. Uh, so so the tricky part about the project is that it's seven and a half acres. Right. It's not just mm-hmm. the restaurants and it includes historical hangars. It includes the marina. It includes the the parking garage, you know, that was built in the in the front of the of the project. So there's so many different uh, boards and permits and because it's so complicated you know so 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 you know that's why it took so long and then on top of that we lost two years of covid so that just added more so so we finally opened bayshore club last july um a year ago and it's 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 been off to a huge success and uh we're 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 very happy with it it's doing tremendous sales of people i think have enjoyed it uh I think back to that conversation that I had with that lady at Scott. Yeah, did, did she ever show up? No, I, maybe, maybe I don't. It was, you know, that was like ten years ago, so I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't remember her. But I'm hoping that folks like her, they were able to go and say, you know what, yeah, the, the food is better, and and it's and it's still a beautiful view, and you know, service is better, and it's nah, and, it's amazing. I would tell everyone live music, you know, like mm-hmm. I promised, and so, so I'm hoping people are enjoying it, and and you know. And, and I think sales speaks, right? So if, you, if you're doing high sales overall, people, you know, you could say people are happy overall. So, yeah. Yeah. And if you're driving, just don't do it now, but pause this, open up your app, check out the Bayshore Club because it is beautiful. It's a place you want to hang out. It's yeah. what I think of when I think of Miami, because like you said, there's not yeah. many places on the water to, to go right. have a meal. It's crazy right. in our right, city. Right. So. You're doing fantastic. I love what you've built across our city. I'm I'm grateful that you're doing these kind of things. Thank you. Thank you. But what's coming up next? Not saying like the next five years, but do you have yeah. another tear of five restaurants opening in the next twelve to well, twenty? Well, we just months? yeah. Well, we just announced that we're that we're uh, going uh, going to Vegas with a uh, stubborn seed. So we're opening there. We're shooting for June of next year. So we're going to be on the Strip at the. It's in a partnership. It, it's great because it's a fifty fifty partnership with. Uh, with the resorts world. Awesome. So it's, so it's, it's, it, it's not a traditional lease or it's not a traditional uh, license or name. They actually want it to be partners where, you know, you know, we operate, but it's 50, 50, mm-hmm. you know, let's do it together. And so we said, great, let's do it. Are you fishing for that kind of deal or they come find It was an introduction. Or, or no, it, it was really random. The chairman's son of the uh, Genting group had been to Stubborn Seed. He's a big fan. Mm-hmm. We knew somebody in common made an introduction. It was, you know, one of those things. And they were like, like the last spot that they have, you know, because that property is fairly new. It's, yeah, it's like a year. over two years. Yeah. yeah. And then so there's like one spot left that they were saving to bring like their highest end restaurant there. And it, it just worked out. It was one of those things that it was just, you know, meant to be. Uh, and so, cool. so far working with those guys has been fantastic. They're really good people. And, uh, you know, you know, so we're very excited. So, so from there, you know, we'll see, we'll, we'll see, I think, you know, we see stubborn is the one that maybe has some legs and maybe we have a rollout like after Vegas, you know, looking at New York or London or, you know, something like that, you know, Jeremy's behind it, you know, he's, he's super excited. So, so, you know, we'll see how it goes, you know, separate from this, you know, we don't talk about this, but I'll, 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 I'll bring it up, you know, so we have two divisions. We have the, the street side restaurant divisions, which is all the, you know, 
you know, as we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, we have an airport division. So we have like, you know, 20 restaurants and airports that, you know, we don't. I didn't know that. Really so tell me about that. Like what? Give us a, a little rundown on that. What is that? Yeah. Like? A whole different world. That's a whole different world. It's a whole different world. It's so. So the reason we have this, it, you know, kind of goes back to to my background, which is in street side restaurants from Shula's and 50 Eggs. And then my mm-hmm. partner's background is he was a CFO of uh, Arius, which is an, you know, airport concessions company. So right. that's kind of how the, our company has been formed because, you know, we had experience in different, you know, in different avenues within our industry. So so our first restaurant was Shula's. Uh, I mentioned that our second restaurant was Corona Beach House here at uh, MIA. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, we just kept expanding. So we have two here in Miami. We have uh, two in Seattle. We're opening. We have four open in Providence. We're opening four more. And we have eight under construction in uh in uh Raleigh. So wow. yeah, so that's an expanding, you know, you know, so is, that, is that the run completely separate? Is that like the bread and butter? Are they mixing when you do your accounting? I don't we know the them, Yeah, you know, we run them out of the same corporate office, but it's but it's kind of two separate divisions. Yeah, you know, we link them separate. That's interesting, right? Because it's yeah. two completely different models where you have people flowing through all day, mm-hmm. every day in the airports. Right. right. I don't know much about that industry at all. I know that well, you know it what's can be very profitable well, if you do it the right very, way. Very. They're, they're very hard to get into because, you know, mm-hmm. they are profitable. So, you know, getting, you know, winning one of these bids is very, very difficult. Uh, but, but, you know, once you're in, it's a, it's a good business. But what's interesting and what's given us a, a heads up is that <clears throat> a lot of the airports are kind of changing. Uh, they they want to change their offerings from the traditional TGI Fridays and stuff like that, that, going more to local and chef driven. So mm-hmm. I think what 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 we've been able to do is show, hey, look at all the restaurants that we've built. Like we can do anything, but guess what? We also operate an airport, so we can offer you the best of both worlds. You know, we can create a concept that you want with your local beer company, or your local chef, but. We already have the up uh, the the airport operations experience, which is very different, you know. So, so like, am oh, I getting cool. a Stiltsville at MIA anytime? No, soon? no. Well, <laughs> if they want it, we'll do it. Sure. But, I like that. I like that brand. You know, not right now. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, I loved learning about that because I was having a conversation a bit with that with uh, someone who's doing that, but they did like Laguardia ones, all their Laguardia yeah. restaurants, mm-hmm. and they were saying that it, they want to go local, and they brought in a ton of local restaurants and right. It's interesting because I have another podcast, and if you had heard that, we we're just talking about how airports are going back to letting people do day passes, so you could go to the gates if you don't have a ticket, and it's starting right. to go through different airports. So, if you have some good restaurants and good bars to hang out, I'll go drop yeah. off my friend, grab a drink, and then there you go, out. yeah, make it something to show up for. Well, anyway, I know how busy you are, and you've built some amazing things, and you've got this going on in Vegas, and you've got things happening in the airports, and you and I are both Miami boys, and if you were starting out today and someone, your young Ignacio is joining you on your company and he's starting in one of your restaurants, what advice are you giving to him if he's starting out day one? I think it, it, I think try to learn as much as possible and, and just and just keep, you know, I, I, what I see often is that some of the younger professionals want to get from A to B and like now, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just, you know, experience you can't. You can't do overnight. There's a lot of things with the phones that you can do very quickly, and you know things have sped up a lot with technology. But experience is not one of them, right? I would say take your time, work super hard, and learn as much as you can. Learn as much as you can, not just about what you do. So if somebody who's coming in operations, I, I would encourage them be like, hey, 
asked to work in the marketing team for six months, asked to work in finance or accounting for six months, asked to work in HR or in training, right? So you can develop a, a, a holistic view as to what it is it takes to run a company or a restaurant, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think if I look at some of our peers or, you know, if I look at our industry and you see it, uh, you know, we're known to have a somewhat high failure rate. And more often than not, when I, when I look at who fails is sometimes you have a great chef that uh, that has a great menu and can really cook, but he signs a bad lease. You know, he or she signs a bad lease and that's it, you're done. Or, you know, they don't know about PR or marketing or HR or banking or insurance or, you know, accounting, financial reporting, how to deal with investors, you know, uh, license on permits. So, you know, there's a lot more than operations or there's a lot more than one specific thing, um, you know, you know, to be successful in, you know, running a restaurant. So the more you learn in all these different disciplines, you know, the better this person would be. You know? That's great advice. It really is because we've talked to a lot of people who want to have a restaurant and don't realize what goes into it and yeah. how much you have to know. Yeah. So I think you set the scene for them. Well, Ignacio, look, I'm very grateful you spent this time with us. I know our listeners yeah. definitely appreciate it. You've built something really special. And again, listeners, make sure, check out Grove Bay Hospitality Group. They have some of the best restaurants, not just in our city, but I think in the country. You can put them up against any of them. Um, The Michelin star proves it. So once again, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.